does it matter that we believe in what the book is teaching? Does it matter uh, our faith in God? How does that impact our lives? Does that matter? And slight spoiler alert, but yes, it does. That's what I was come to. Yes, it really does matter. And what I want to do is start this morning with um, kind of some examples of that. And I'll, I'll give you some negative examples of how our beliefs really do matter. And then I'll give you some uh, positive examples out of the book of Galatians. So beliefs mattering. Let me, let me start with some negative examples. I don't know if you recognize some of these people, but this is Claude Marcel Vorkilon. He changed his name to Rael, and he is the founder of a cult called Raelism. It's based in Canada. It has, I'm not making this up, 80,000 believers worldwide. They believe that all life on Earth was genetically engineered by aliens, and they are apocalyptic in nature in that they believe there will be a disaster and the, the, the aliens are going to come back and take the true believers in realism back with them. They have very church-like services. They look a lot like a church. They have a lot of money. Uh, they have some very odd practices um, in regards to male and female uh, relationships, if you take my meaning. And they're still active today. This is Marshall Applewhite. He changed his name to Doe. He is the founder of a cult called Heaven's Gate. Uh, they started in Oregon, and then they moved to California. Uh, they had hundreds of believers in the San Diego region, and they were also apocalyptic. And they also had a science fiction theme that they would get new bodies from the aliens, and the aliens' mothership was inside the Hale-Bopp comet, which in the 1990s made a close flyby of our solar system. Um, they convinced he, along with him, uh, 39 people to commit suicide in order to get their new alien bodies in the Heaven's Gate cult. This is the warm and fuzziest member of this uh, not-so-good set I'm giving you. He's not terribly violent, but this is Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, which had a cult um, that I think had a formal name, but we just called them Rajneeshis. Uh, they were based in India and in Oregon, eastern Oregon. They had maybe 100,000 believers worldwide in this cult. It mostly dealt with um, getting money from people isolating families from the rest of their family and giving money to the Bhagwan. The Bhagwan did great things with it spiritually and bought 21 pink Rolls Royce silver ghosts. Um, he got in a little trouble with taxes. They kind of tried to take over Grant County, Oregon by an election process, but they ended up getting uh, arrested. They were semi-violent. This one, if you're of a certain age, you'll remember well, it's the Reverend Jim Jones. Uh, formed a cult called the Rainbow Family. It started in San Francisco. They were very apocalyptic and also had a lot of relationship uh, things that were pretty uh, perverted. They looked a lot like a church. They had about 2,000 believers worldwide. They left the United States and moved to Guyana. And in the late 70s, uh, they committed suicide in a mass suicide with 918 people, including one U.S. congressman in the area of Guyana. Vernon Howell changed his name to David Koresh, changed that to the Lamb of God. He founded a group called the Branch Davidians, which was a Texas-based apocalyptic semi-Christian cult, looked a lot like a church, had several hundred followers. They got into a standoff with the Federals. There was a raid. There was a fire that was a, not a lot of evidence because it all burned to the ground, but it looks like they kind of set the fire, and 80 people died. 
Shoko Ashihara, who had several changed names that I can't pronounce, but they were an apocalyptic science fiction cult in Japan, uh, about 2,000 members. Uh, they wanted to jumpstart the apocalypse by releasing sarin gas and knifing people and setting off some bombs in the Tokyo subway. On one level, they were very inept and none of the bombs went off, but 13 people did die of poison gas in the early 2000s. So if we take a look at putting these all together, science fiction seems to be a common theme, deviant relationship issues between men, women, old and young, personality-driven, a very charismatic leader, they take your money, they isolate you from the rest of society, change names, and then sort of a messiah idea that they're going to, uh, the end of the world is coming. Those are common things. Now what if, and I've kind of left one more off this list, and I'll get to that now. What if you had a cult leader, when you see these people, they kind of stand out, right? I mean, when I showed the faces, you didn't think, oh, this is going to be a good one. Like Marshall Applewhite, Doe, right? You just kind of jump back from the screen. What if they were a little bit slicker, though? What if they were a little smarter? What if the cult leader was highly charismatic and politically ambitious and politically skilled? What if you combined that charismatic leader with an extreme racial prejudice at a time when the economy of the country was going very, very badly? what you get is you get a political party that is a cult. And brethren, I give you the National German Socialist Workers' Party, the NDSAP, which we usually just colloquially call them Nazis. This was a cult. It was founded by Adolf Hitler. He had a nickname, too. At its peak in the 1940s, 8 million members, which was about 10% of the population of Germany, their beliefs led them to start a war, World War II. Their beliefs killed between 40 and 60 million people, mostly Soviets, as the Soviets kind of bore the biggest brunt of the fighting in World War II, and this includes, obviously, the Holocaust and several other bad things that have all fallen through that. Our beliefs form our actions, and there's consequences for actions. If we look at Galatians, the stakes might seem a little lower, but they're not. They really aren't. All these cults begin with a single step away from Jesus Christ. They all start slow. They all start small. They all start subtle, but it's a distinct step, and then another step, and then another step, and then pretty soon it's into the crazy territory. But the people got involved with that. And so part of what we're looking at today and part of what I want to talk about is obviously the choices we make and how we live and what we can learn out of Galatians with that because you are not a product of circumstances. You are a product of your choices. Hitler is not a product of the circumstances in Nazi Germany. He's a product of the choices he made. And his followers are products of the choices they make. And our choices are based on our beliefs. So beliefs have a tremendous impact on who we are and what we are. And the book of Galatians can serve kind of as a warning for us. The Galatian church was heading in the wrong path, and Paul was trying to fix that. 
And so I love this poster that, you know, if you can't read it, it says, it could be that the, your purpose in life is to serve as a warning to others. Here we are looking at the Galatian church separated by 2,000 years almost and in a different space. It can be a reminder for us not to follow what the Galatians were doing, to listen to Paul's warning and to be clear about what we believe and why. So we're going to take a 30,000-foot down view of the book of Galatians, looking at this for how can we, can we can learn from this a little bit. And the big idea, the central question, if you're taking notes, I'm now kind of following that, the question is, do our beliefs matter? That's the central question. Do our beliefs matter? And the answer is yes. Yes, they do. They will determine what we'll now call the six Fs. Your family, your footwork, your foundation, your freedom, your findings, and your future. Yes, I like alliteration. I spent a lot of time with the SARS to get those right. Let me pray real quick. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you this morning as your group of believers that you've called out. We give thanks to you for this place that we can meet in in freedom, for your word given to us in a language we can understand, and Father, for the people that have gone before us to both instruct us in the faith and to provide us this building and this church. And Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit that any deficiencies of my study would be overwhelmed by you and me and you in each one of the people hearing my voice. And this morning, Father, because of this time with you, we would leave closer to you, Father, and closer to one another. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, we're going to start, as is traditional, with number one on your notes, which is a little uh, rehash the facts of Galatians very quickly. And I'll go as fast as I can here. The author is Paul. He was born Saul of Tarsus. This is not an accurate photograph of Paul. Um, this is Paul as an old man. Uh, when Paul wrote Galatians, he was a lot younger than that, or he might have lived a really hard life, but he was only in his 40s when he wrote this. Saul of Tarsus, Paul, was born a Hebrew's Hebrew. He was Jewish. He was raised by or educated by one of the greatest rabbins of the Pharisees. I mean, he was popular, political, he was sharp, he was a big shot in the church. He was educated in Jerusalem, which is the high point of the faith. He was a zealot. He persecuted Christians. He was such a zealot. He was a Roman citizen. So he was protected by Roman law. That gave him the ability to travel all over the known world, or what we would call the Roman Empire. And he was educated as a, a writer and a teacher. He had incredible gifts with that. At age 30, he was on a travel to Damascus, and he met God, literally. And that changed his entire life, literally. And he became Paul. He wrote this, uh, the book of Galatians, about uh, when he was 45 years old, which was in 48 AD. And interesting, chronologically, this was his first book. This was his first letter he wrote. I don't know if that makes any difference, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, his audience was the churches, Christian churches in Galatia. And indirectly, of course, we get to listen to this conversation. Paul's talking to the Galatian churches. We're kind of over here, overhearing Paul's side of this argument. The setting, uh, this is a map of the Roman Empire in the first century in about 50 AD. 
The Romans would have called this a map of the entire world. Uh, but Galatia is in red there, central Turkey. Uh, Galatia has a Jewish culture, so steeped in Jewish traditions. Uh, and because of that culture, there were a group of people called Judaizers. They were leaders who were trying to teach Christians to be more Jewish-like, to adopt laws, to adopt customs, to follow Jewish law in order to gain their salvation. Themes, very basic, and there's probably a million different themes, but if you pick three, which I did, first one is only Christ. It's only about Jesus Christ. Uh, justification by faith through grace. Second theme is only by the Spirit, that your sanctification is by faith through grace. And the third one is to walk as a believer, and walk will always mean live your life. Key verse, which Bill read for us this morning, is man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's important because that's exactly what the, the Galatians were not hearing. They were hearing this. They will work for their salvation, that you have to earn your salvation. You have to do things, which is all contrary to Christ. And these Judaizers, I think, are probably the best model in the New Testament of the wolf in the sheep's clothing. They looked Christian. They acted Christian. They used Bible verses, but they were teaching something totally contrary that denied Jesus Christ. The style of the, oh, excuse me, structure. You can divide Galatians, the book of, into three groupings. Uh, Gary gave us an outline. I looked at one of Chuck Swindoll's outlines. I combined them together, and now I can publish this as mine. That's how that works, by the way. Um, they're all pretty similar. If you look at any theologian, they're going to break it down pretty similarly. There's going to be a personal appeal. There's going to be an explanation of the faith of grace in this case, and then there will be grace applied. How to apply this in your life. And it's pretty consistent. Paul's style in this is, a, is very personal. This is a personal letter, and it's um, pretty pointed. It's, uh, he doesn't pull any punches with the Galatians. It's a little bit unique that way. Uh, there's a lot of contrasts in it. Paul spends a lot of time contrasting faith versus the law, the Holy Spirit versus acting in your flesh, and essentially, is God in control or are you in control? And the Judaizers were preaching man, flesh, and the law is how you're saved. And Paul spends a lot of time saying no. He uses a lot of Old Testament quotes. Jewish culture wants to reach them. Um, he jumps around a little bit, and it's dense. That's one of the most important things that I take out of this is Paul will say one sentence in Galatians. He will expand that argument when he writes Romans by about a factor of three. So when you read Romans, 18 chapters, 16 chapters, uh, Galatians is just six short chapters, highly condensed. Galatians has had a tremendous impact on world history. Martin Luther was inspired by Galatians, by his own writings, to jumpstart what was called the Reformation of the Church, the Protestant Reformation, which happened 500 years ago this October. There'll be big celebrations about that. Interestingly, um, Martin Luther didn't regard what he did as a good, uh, as a as a failure, as a success. Uh, he wanted to change the church, to reform the church, but instead it created a split. 
And we're still dealing with that today. 500 years and running, we're still in the middle of what we call the Protestant Reformation. It's an ongoing thing that was started by Martin Luther being inspired by the book of Galatians. So historically, socially, uh, politically, highly influential book. The question is, is it influential on us? Has it been? Well, I think so. As a church, we picked a new name a few years ago, Grace Point. Some of the greatest teaching on grace and why it's important comes out of Galatians. So, yeah, I think we are a little different because of this. I think it has changed us in ways we can point to. But the central question is, does it matter? And the answer is yes. Let's look at how. And we're going to do it in six different ways, starting with the first F, which is family. Your beliefs determine your family. And what I'm talking about is justification, which is on this side of the church when I point, and that is our first tense of our salvation. We are justified by faith where I was saved from the penalty of sin. And what we're talking about is that puts us in the family of God on a permanent basis. You can trace your genealogy and you can have studies that go back in time, but when you were justified in the past, you became part of God's family on a permanent basis. God's family includes all of us on equal terms. There's no lieutenant Christian and sergeant Christians. We're all Christians. It also includes everyone that's gone before us. Paul spent a lot of time talking about how in the family of God, we're related to those that went in the past, like Abraham, and we're related to those who will come after us. Galatians 3, I'm going to be quoting from Scripture, and if, I, I don't know if you want to try to keep up with flipping pages. I probably go too fast, so I apologize. But um, when it talks about family, chapter 3, verse 26, for you were all sons, sons meaning men and women, it's a, the Greek term, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So Paul spends a lot of time lining up this idea that we're in a family. We're in a family together of God, and it's a, it's a way to refute legalism. Legalism is about dividing people. Legalism is about making lieutenants and sergeants, and I do more good works than you do, so I'm more important and more righteous than you. That's what was being taught by the Judaizers, and Paul blows all that away. That's not what the Bible teaches. You're all one in Christ. You're all in God's family because of your beliefs. Two footwork. Your beliefs determine the footsteps you make, or what we usually call our walk. Our daily walk in faith is determined by our beliefs. Faith in God, reliance on God, determines our actions on a daily basis. Galatians 5, uh, verse 16, and then verse 22. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then Paul talks about the desires of the flesh, and then he picks it up again in 22. In contrast to the desires of the flesh, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified in the flesh with all of its passions and all of its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And that is the second phase or second tense of our salvation, which is in the middle of the church. Sanctification. I am being saved from the power of sin. Walk by the Spirit is the antidote to giving in to the flesh and sinful desires. As we grow in faith, we should do better with that. As we mature, no matter what age you are, we should be closer to God. We should be more Christ-like. We call that conforming to Christ. We heard from Paul this morning about his sanctification, his, his desire following his beliefs. His footsteps led the Mayhew family all the way to China. Third, foundation. Your beliefs determine your foundation for action. Another word for your foundation for action is your motive. Your beliefs determine your motives. Repeatedly, Paul takes the Judaizers to task. The Judaizers were about self-motive, self-righteousness, and about showing off their faith to the community. They really liked the outward show. They were show-offs. They were like this guy. Okay? They talked about how righteous they were. They prayed on the street corner. They did things publicly. They wanted to receive their rewards right now for their faith. And Paul says, that's smoke. That's nothing. That will fade into nothingness. Galatians 6, 13. But they, the Judaizers, have a desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Judaizers were scared of being ridiculed. The Judaizers wanted to get public acclaim. Their motive was not heavenly. Their motive was to get acclaim now. Um, Reverend Plum Blossom, when he's in China, I don't think, I, mean, I don't know, Paul, but I don't think you said, boy, I want to be a missionary so I can eat snake and uh, have this really comfortable life on the road in China. Uh, the Judaizers were motivated by fear and by flesh. As Christians, we're to be motivated by the cross and to follow. That's our second phase of our salvation. Third option, or third F, is, um, excuse me, fourth, is freedom. Your freedom is determined by your beliefs. Paul likened living by the flesh or living by law as being enslaved. That the law put you in chains. But Christ broke all that. Broke the chains, set us free. Galatians 4, 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're part of the royal family. When we are justified, we are put into God's family. It's like being an heir. We're considered co-heirs with Christ. That's, that's a permanent thing. And it frees us from the penalty of the law. It frees us from the requirements of the law. We call that Christian liberty. And it's a pretty beautiful thing. Galatians 5.1 
For it was, from, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery, the law. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, <clears throat> but through love serve one another, or sanctification. In chapter 3, Paul explains that the law, if you're going to follow the law, has to be kept perfectly. All 613 items, jot and tittle of the law must be followed exactly right or you are completely convicted. There's no half scales. You're totally guilty if you blow one of them. That's why the law enslaves us. That's why our doctrine of Christian liberty, of the, the belief of you're in the family of God, is so freedom. It gives you freedom. And we have, each of us have a different freedom that you may personally believe in certain things. You have freedom to do that. Another person may have personal conviction to abstain from certain things. They're both equal. It's your relationship with God that gives you that liberty. It's by Christ that we're set free. Fifth, findings. Your beliefs determine your decisions and choices. Your findings, what you decide to do. You found you're going to do something. What we believe is who we are. Who we are is demonstrated by the choices we make. And Paul makes it very simple. Live by, make your decisions by faith or by flesh. Chapter 6, Paul reminds us about the doctrine on judgments. We, we've talked about this at a couple times, but he has a very short verse that reminds us that everyone will be judged at the end. And the first judgment is the great white throne of judgment where you are essentially, are you a believer or not a believer? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will move on to heaven. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you will end up in a lake of fire. Not fun to talk about, but it sets the stakes pretty high. If you're a believer and you've been justified, if you've already placed your faith in Jesus, you have nothing to worry about with the throne of judgment. The great white throne, you've, you've already passed it. There is a second judgment for believers, though. As believers, we will move on to the Bema seat of judgment where our works, our actions are evaluated. Things that are worthwhile, that we've done, we are rewarded for things that are worthless, things we've done in the flesh, will disappear. They will be like flash paper. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Paul's using an agricultural metaphor. How are you living your life? Worthwhile seeds that you plant or that you sow are things done in faith, and they will grow. Worthless things we do, things we do in our own spirit or by bad motives or in the flesh, are seeds that will never amount to anything. They're just, it's just wasted time. Uh, first people, Native Americans, have a, an, a legend about the two wolves that live in your heart. I don't know if you've heard this. One wolf is mean and bad. One wolf is good and kind. And the idea is that which wolf do you feed? Okay, same idea, sowing by the flesh versus sowing by the spirit. Um, 
make sure you're planting worthwhile actions. Your findings are based on your beliefs. Future. This one is pretty simple, dealing with this way, which is your beliefs will determine your future, meaning glorification, the third tense of your salvation. We will be glorified where there will be no presence of sin. And that is based as probably the most fundamental truth of the gospel. You believe, and that's all, and you're saved. First thing is God does it. Galatians 1.15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Galatians 2.16. We have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. It's a fundamental, it's a basic, basic truth. You believe and you're saved. You are saved by faith through grace. Which comes back to that central question. Does what we believe matter? I think Galatians is pretty clear. Yes. Yes! It matters. We have a future because of our beliefs. We have our findings, our decisions are determined by our beliefs. Our freedom we receive because of our beliefs. Our foundation, our motives are by belief. Our footwork, our daily walk is because of our beliefs. And we have a permanent family because of our beliefs. Which takes us to the application phase of the sermon. Now, whenever I get to the takeaways, the applications, I will always stop and say, this is personal. This is what I have wrestled with with the Holy Spirit, and I'm sharing it with you. It's not revealed truth. You need to wrestle as you listen to this with the Holy Spirit and come up with your own takeaways and your own application. I say all this just to stimulate thinking and perhaps have a good argument with you sometime. So, since your beliefs are so important, since your beliefs determine so many things about you, it makes sense to pay attention to what you believe and why you believe it. To learn from the Galatian churches. To maybe part of this is to be able to identify a cult before you get sucked into something or to identify uh, something that is leading away from God and take doctrine seriously the way that Paul took doctrine seriously. To do that, I think there's three things and then a fourth, a why. So the first one is this. Be engaged and be alert. Be engaged and alert. Who we are is what we believe. So think about what you believe. Be engaged and alert with what you say. Be engaged with what you sing, with what you share with people, with what you focus on. It matters. Sometimes songs are really interesting because there's great songs that are catchy and they're, they have a great beat and they're fun to sing. But sometimes you need to look at the words. I don't know if you've ever had that happen where you've listened to a song for 25 years and all of a sudden you finally listen to the words and you're like, holy cow, I was singing about something as an idiot teenager that that was bad. Okay? It matters what we believe be engaged. And I guess part of this is be a critical listener. You know, make it personal to you. Don't go through the motions on Sunday morning sitting here and nodding your head. You need to think critically. You need to be an active listener 
to whatever's going on up here and don't just accept it because some person wearing a tie and standing up front says it's so or some bozo on the TV screen says this is the way it is. Check them. Fact check them. Look it up yourself. That's being a critical listener. And if you hear something that's junk, call the person on it. I mean, gently and in love and all that, but if you smell something, say something, okay? That's a good thing. If something smells funny, call people on it. If we all did this, cults wouldn't be anywhere, okay? Be engaged. Be alert. Your doctrine matters. I mean, I, Krista will be hopefully in college in two years. I mean, we're kicking her out either way, but she'll be on her own. It is highly motivational to me. <clears throat> Have I given her enough doctrine? Have I given her enough foundation in our beliefs in the faith of the church that she'll be able to spot something when she's on her own? And somebody say, hey, come to this church. It's great. You know, and they got one of those guys with the buggy eyes wanting your money and stuff. Okay, will she spot that? That's motivational. Secondly, speaking of motivation, grace, love, and the faith, which are the opposites of competition, pride, and self. If our motives are to help and heal, to share, rather than win an argument, we're probably in better shape. I'm kind of competitive by nature. I think that's good in a lot of ways. But with church stuff, it really scares me because I have screwed this up many times. I get into a chance. I get a, an, a, a discussion going on with somebody. Okay, maybe it's a God space moment. Maybe it's like running into a couple that is shooting and wants to know more about Jesus. I get into the discussion. It starts to become a little bit competitive or a little bit adversarial. And rather than trying to win the soul, I want to win the argument. It can happen on Facebook. It can happen face-to-face. -face. It can happen all over the place. We, our flesh, for me, can take over, and all of a sudden I want to win. And I'm less worried about winning the person for Christ. If we follow the example of Jesus, we'll be in pretty good shape. Jesus was all about selfless love. He was a sensitive person. He wept with his friends when bad things happened. He always taught by example. The Judaizers, they pointed at themselves. Jesus himself, did he point at himself as would be his right? No. Jesus always said this is about God. Even Christ, again, by example, pointed to God in his life. Our motive should be grace. Third one. Be positive and encouraging in every aspect of your life. Again, competition for me always blows that out of the water. I need to be better at being positive and encouraging. Think about Christ. Would you see Christ at a protest rally with a bullhorn yelling about anything, about how something's screwed up or how things are bad and how things are awful now? It's hard to picture that. And there's a reason why it's hard to picture that. Would Jesus go on Facebook and humble brag about all the things he gave up for Lent? Aren't I a good person for giving up all the stuff for Lent? Would Jesus vote somebody off the island on Survivor? Is that still a show? Is that still on? 
Okay, so the reference, good. That, that's still, I can still use that, good. No, Christ was positive. He built people up. He was an encourager. There's a lot of bad things around, and yet he was always positive. He was always encouraging, and we can do that. And it's weird for me to stand here talking about this. These are three things I'm working on in my life. A little, little vulnerable here. And when I think back in my life at these three things, what I don't remember is when I've done it right. I only remember the times I've done it wrong. And that's kind of human nature, and that's a little bit convicting, and like a little bit convicting. The fourth question, or the fourth application, is to ask, why are these three things important? Why should, for me, why do I want to be more engaged? Why do I want to be motivated by grace? And why do I want to always be positive and encouraging? And what I come back to for that is it's the fourth question, which is, it's for evangelism. It's about God's space. It's about reaching people for Christ. If I'm not those three things, I'm going to have a hard time having a good God-space conversation with somebody. If I'm acting by the flesh, if I'm not paying attention to what we believe, if I am not motivated by God and by grace, I'm probably going to have a hard time reaching somebody. As a church, we can learn from the Galatians. We can avoid falsehoods. We can be better representatives of Jesus Christ to our community. I mean, Christian means little Christ. We call ourselves Christians. We can do better at representing this to our community. And I tried to come up with a, something good to show you about this, a positive example. Paul provided a great example. Now, when I was younger and growing up, that's who I, okay, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to be a missionary or a pastor or, well, only a few people are called to that. So what can we do? And what I want to show you is an example of, a, of one person doing one thing that actually changed a whole bunch of things. Um, this is a recreation I'm going to show you, okay? But it actually happened, and then they turned it into a little ad, and then that ad caused all kinds of change and then replicated itself over and over again. And if you remember, uh, 1992, the winter of 1992, the Gulf War was going on. This was the first major conflict our country had had since the Vietnam War. And, yeah, that's enough setup. I think we'll just go with that. You don't need to turn the lights off. This is very short. One person, one act of being positive and encouraging, they didn't say a word. Somebody just clapped. That's all. It wasn't a 
Nothing wrong with big dramatic steps. But to be positive and encouraging in a simple, small way, that scene was replicated all across the country for a while. I'd like to think we're a little different country because maybe we recognized after a generation that we owe our service people a lot. It's been said that the Christian life is impossible, and I think it is. To balance all the things we talk about is hard to do. But him in us, anything is possible. His love for us makes that possible. Our response to his love is the basis of our motives. And our belief in him is what makes us who we are. So our beliefs really matter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close out this time of instruction and move now to a